Hello and welcome everybody. This is Toby with BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Wednesday, March the 21st, and I just want to thank you for tuning in and listening. I think today's going to be a really good podcast. We're all going to learn a lot from what we're going to discuss today, and I think this is going to help us to answer skeptics in one of the main objections to Christianity, and that is whether or not the Bible is reliable? Does it say what it said when it was written? Is it true to what the authors wrote? And this is a great topic. I think we're all going to have a lot of fun. So stick around and have a listen. First, I just want to mention a couple things. I want to thank you guys so much for those of you who have emailed me and given me your support and your encouragement and your prayers. It means so much to me that I, I don't even have time in this podcast to express how thankful I am to you. I want to thank you so much for for emailing me. If any of you want to get in touch with me through email, you can email me at cleanslate, C-L-E-A-N-S-L-A-T-E, dot ministries at hotmail.com. I appreciate all the emails. Thank you very much. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention is that I have designed a bumper sticker for BibleStudyPodcast.org, and I'm just not sure how many of these I should order. I'm trying to gauge the the level of interest here. If any of you are interested in a bumper sticker, and it would probably just be, you know, like two bucks, and you could PayPal it to me or whatever, um... If any of you are interested, let me know through email, and that way I'll have an idea of how many of these things to make. And obviously, the more I order, the cheaper they'll be per sticker. So let me know if any of you are interested in that. But anyway, let's get into our study today, and that is on whether or not the Bible is historically reliable. And I'm just going to talk about the Old Testament for a couple minutes here. This is a very simple answer. If somebody ever objects to the Old Testament not being reliable, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these are absolutely undeniable evidence that the Old Testament today says what it said 200 years before Jesus was born. See, the Dead Sea Scrolls are these texts that were copied about 200 years before Jesus. And what happened is these people put the scripts in these jars and put the jars deep in these caves. And it wasn't until the 1940s when there were some shepherds trying to get their sheep out of these caves. They threw a rock in there trying to scare the sheep out. And what they hear, they heard these jars break. So they went in there and they found all these old texts of the Old Testament. And there were some other writings in there as well, but the Old Testament was in there. The book of Isaiah was almost entirely there. So we know that there was only one author of Isaiah because, you know, one of the objections to the book of Isaiah is that there's a dual authorship, that half of it was written before Jesus and half of it was written after because the prophecies in the book of Isaiah so accurately foretold what happened that critics and scholars said, well, you know, all of this is so accurate, it must have been written after the events happened. But no, the texts for Isaiah were all there. So praise the Lord for that. And Every book of the Old Testament had at least part of its of its text in these jars. So we have the Dead Sea Scrolls to prove that the Old Testament 
says today what it said 2,200 years ago. So we know that it says now what it said 2,200 years ago. The text has not been altered. It hasn't been corrupted. It's as reliable today as it was back then. We know what the Jewish customs were for copying the text. These guys would write down word for word exactly what, what they were copying. And if they made one mistake, if they wrote down one wrong letter, those scripts were burned. We know that from Jewish custom. So we know that the Old Testament says today what it said when it was written. But that's the Old Testament. The New Testament, the answer is a lot more complicated. But at the same time, while it's more complicated, we have a lot more evidence for the accuracy and the historical reliability of the New Testament. First of all, we have earlier manuscripts for our texts than any other ancient manuscript. The earliest manuscripts that we have were written 25 to 150 years after the original New Testament writings, compared to about a thousand year average for other ancient books. For example, if you look at the writings of Homer, everybody's heard of Homer's Iliad, right? I had to read it in college. A lot of people read it in school. The amount of time between the original writings of Homer and the earliest copies are approximately 500 years. There's a 500-year gap between the time it was written and the time it was first copied. But we have these fragments of the New Testament that were found in Egypt dating back to the early 2nd century. And this is referred to as John Ryland's fragment. It's a fragment of John 18, 31 to 33. And this little piece says exactly what our Bibles today say. And here's the thing. By the early 2nd century, I mean, we're talking, you know, year 110, maybe 115. And it had already gotten all the way down to Egypt. So in order for it to have already gotten all the way down to Egypt, it had to have been written considerably earlier. And also, some scholars believe that the Magdalene fragment of the Gospel of Matthew is from approximately year 60 AD. There's this fragment from the book of Matthew that dates back to year 60 AD. And you can see the LA Times, there was a story that they published on December 25th, 1994, page A42. You can reference that for yourself if you don't believe me. You can write that down and you can tell the skeptics, go and check this out for yourself. This is proof of the New Testament's reliability. But the proof doesn't stop there. We also have more copies, more ancient manuscripts than any other ancient text. We have 5,686 handwritten Greek New Testament manuscripts compared to less than 20 for most other books from the ancient world. For example, again, comparing this with Homer's Iliad, there are 643 ancient copies of Homer's Iliad compared with the 5,686 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And you know what? Nobody is questioning the reliability or the accuracy of Homer's Iliad, the way that they are contesting the reliability and accuracy of the Bible. But there's no contest. We have so many more manuscripts than any other ancient book. It's just off the charts. We also have more accurately copied manuscripts. The New Testament books are more accurately copied than any other 
books from the ancient world. The Mahabharata is only 90% accurate. That is, if you compare the earlier texts with the later texts and all the texts in between, there's about a 90% accuracy rate. With Homer, it's about 95% accuracy. The New Testament, taking all the manuscripts into consideration, the New Testament is 99.5% accurate. We also have the writings of the early church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century who quoted the Bible 36,289 times in their writings. As a matter of fact, there are only 11 verses in the whole New Testament that the church fathers left out of their writings. So you know what? If for some reason every Bible in the world disappeared was burned, was destroyed, whatever, we would be able to reconstruct the whole New Testament, minus 11 verses, most of those from uh, 2nd and 3rd John. We'd be able to reconstruct the whole New Testament just on their writings. And how cool is that? So I know that in the last five minutes, we've shot through a lot of information. So I'm just going to sum up what we've gone through so far. First, we have earlier manuscripts. Second, the Bible has more ancient manuscripts. Third, the Bible has more accurately copied manuscripts. And fourth, we have more abundantly supported manuscripts. And this is stuff that you can go and research on your own. If you're a skeptic and you're listening to this, you don't believe any of this, you can go and you can look any of this stuff up for yourself. This is all stuff that has been documented and proven through the last hundred or so years, ever since archaeology's popularity really started to grow in the early 20th century. And the conclusion that we can reach after considering just those things is that the New Testament is an accurate copy of what was written in the first century by the authors. Now, there's more evidence on top of what we've already covered, and I'm just going to cover a few points here very quickly. First of all, the New Testament Gospels are cited by other first century works. If you look at like the Gospel of Barnabas, it's it's a fake gospel, of course, but we do know that it's old. We know that it was written toward the end of the first century, maybe the beginning of the second century. But one thing that we can gather from that is that the information that is in the Bible is also found in the pseudo-Barnabas Gospel. There are other writers, uh, such as Clement and Ignatius, who, uh, who, who wrote stuff confirming the validity of the Bible as well. And this proves that the Gospels have to have been written earlier than the first century. And one source that you don't want to miss here, the Jewish Talmud, which was written by the people who opposed Jesus and his ministry. The Jewish Talmud attests to the crucifixion of Jesus. So the fact that it was written by his enemies, why would they be lying? Of course they weren't lying. They were telling exactly what happened. Another point is that even the most critical scholars in the world dates, uh, date the book of 1 Corinthians at around 55 or 56 AD. And that places the written testimony about the death and resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, only 20 to 25 years after the event. And here's the thing. Don't miss this point. 
Studies have shown that it takes about two generations for myth to be confused with fact. In other words, what we read in the Bible, if it was written only 20 or 25 years after those events happened, see, the people that witnessed those things were still around. So there was no room for a myth because anybody who witnessed those events could have stepped forward and said, this is not what happened. These writings are not accurate. Or there would have been other writings saying, you know, this is that that something else happened, totally contrary to the Bible. There's nothing like that. Another point that we have to consider is that the Gospel of Luke was written before Acts. Acts is kind of part two of Luke's writings. And so those writings have to have been written sometime around 60 or 62 AD, because it was written by Luke, who was a ministry partner of Paul. But we know from reading Acts that Acts ends with Paul under Roman house arrest, and it just kind of drops right there. Well, why did that happen? Well, it was probably because Paul and Luke were killed. Luke's narratives were very detailed and would have told of Paul's execution in the early 60s under Nero, who was, of course, in Rome, had it occurred by the time Acts was composed. So it has to have been written before that. Paul makes reference to Luke chapter 10, verse 7, as being scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. And that book, 1 Timothy 5.18, is generally dated by even critical scholars around 62 to 65 AD. So we know that Luke's writings have to have been written before that time, and they have to have been circulated widely enough for both Paul and Timothy to know what it says and to be able to consider it to be scripture. We also know that Jesus clearly prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which occurred in the year 70 AD. But we also know that no New Testament writer acknowledges this as happening. This was something that was huge. The whole temple was taken down in Jerusalem. Everything in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman Empire. But the New Testament doesn't say anything about it. And the silence of the New Testament on this event is unexplainable. And it doesn't make sense to think that the New Testament was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, considering how huge of an event the destruction of Jerusalem was. See, we know that the New Testament writers speak of the temple. They write about the temple as though it's still standing. And you can find that in the Gospels. You can also find it in the later writings by Paul, which were, uh, you know, for example, Second Thessalonians 2.4. It's found in Hebrews. It's found in Revelation. None of them talk about the temple as if it's been destroyed. And here's a quote from William Albright, who was an archaeologist. He wasn't necessarily out to prove the truth of Christianity. He just wanted to unearth some ancient artifacts. And he wrote in his book, Toward a More Conservative View, he wrote, In my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and the 80s of the first century A.D., very probably between about 50 and 75 A.D. In his book, Recent Discoveries in Bible Lands, he says, quote, we can already say emphatically that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about A.D. 80. So we've got archaeology on our side as evidence that these things were, that these books were written 
earlier than about 80 AD and taking into consideration the fact that it takes two generations for a myth to be widely accepted, we can know that these events in the Bible are exactly what happened. There's a Roman historian named A.N. Sherwin-White who calls the mythological view of the New Testament, quote, unbelievable, unquote, because he knew that two generations have to pass before a myth can develop, because before that time, before the two generations have passed, eyewitnesses are still alive to refute any myths that might surface. So let's also consider one other fact, and this is something that I don't want you to miss, because this creates a lot of confusion for skeptics, and that is the integrity of the eyewitnesses who recorded the events in the New Testament. We know that there are discrepancies in the minor details from one gospel account to another. For example, one gospel will tell you that there were two angels at the tomb. Another one will tell you that there is one. They go into different details here and there. But the thing is, eyewitnesses will rarely tell the same story word for word. And eyewitness experts will attest to the fact that when there are discrepancies between minor details, that is actually an indication that they are more likely to be telling the truth. We also know that the New Testament authors left in some very difficult sayings that Jesus gave them and some very demanding morals. And it would have been convenient for them to do otherwise. It would have been easier for them to say that Jesus taught that everybody goes to heaven no matter what. It would have been easier for them to have said something a lot more pluralistic because it was because of their exclusivity. It was because they believed that Jesus was the only way that the followers were persecuted the way they were. So it wouldn't have made any sense for them to have written something that would cause their own death, their own tortured death. We also know that the New Testament authors included in their writings some things that might have been embarrassing for them. They never made themselves out to be heroes. If they would have made themselves out to be heroes, you know, maybe that would be a point of contention. But they made themselves look like fools sometimes. And when people make themselves to look like fools for everybody else to see, there's a greater chance that they're telling the truth. If they were to have made themselves heroes, of course, we would have maybe had something to doubt. But we don't have anything to doubt because they made themselves look like fools. They didn't try to hide their weak moments. We also know that they didn't deny their belief under the persecution and the threat of death. See, these Christians were being killed for their faith. And if their faith was not something real, if this was not something, if what they recorded was not something that actually happened, then they would have had nothing to lose and everything to gain by coming clean and telling the truth that the whole thing was a hoax. Now, these guys weren't even accountable to each other because they were dispersed throughout the world at the time. So it wasn't like Peter was watching James to make sure James didn't slip up and James was watching Paul to make sure that Paul didn't slip up. It, it, these guys weren't accountable to each other. They were dispersed. So the fact that they were willing to be persecuted, the fact that they were willing to die for their beliefs is a strong indication that what they wrote that they witnessed is what they actually witnessed. It would have been more convenient for them to have lied, but they didn't because they believed it to be true. 
And one final fact that we can't overlook, I think, is that women are reported to have been the first eyewitnesses. Whenever you read the resurrection narratives, who went to the tomb and found it? It was women. It was not the writers. It was not even the friends of the writers. It was these women. And in that society, in that culture, for them to have claimed that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection is absurd. Nobody would have believed it. But it was true. Why, why do we know it's true? Because they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by saying that women were the ones who went inside. Women were not acceptable as eyewitnesses in court. So why would they have included it? Because it's true. If they wanted to make something up, if they wanted to make it more believable, they would have said that some men were the first on the scene at the resurrection, but that's not what they said. So, you know, in conclusion, I know that this has gone a little bit longer than I wanted it to. I try to keep these podcasts around 15 or 20 minutes for you guys because, you know, I know that when I see a podcast that's 45 minutes long or an hour long, I'm like, wow, you know, when am I going to have time to listen to that? But I wanted to, to shoot through this stuff and I wanted to give you guys some information. I hope that what you do is hold on to this podcast and listen to it several times. Take notes on what we've talked about here. Write it down and memorize it so that when skeptics come to you with these objections, you have so much evidence to back it up that you will know that the skeptics don't have a leg to stand on. And if you need more resources for researching this stuff, there are a couple books I would suggest. First is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. I would very strongly recommend picking up I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. Those are two books that cover these things. What I've gone over today is based largely in part on, on Josh McDowell's book and Dr. Geisler and Dr. Turek's book. So definitely research this material, know this material, because we have an answer for our faith. We know that the Bible says today what it said when it was written. So praise the Lord for that. So when we study the Bible, we can know that what we are studying is what was written. And the skeptics who say that the Bible has been altered, who say that the Bible has been corrupted over the years, they don't have a valid argument. So praise God for that. And let's just end this in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, and you've blessed us so abundantly in the last century with all the evidence, Lord, for the validity of your word and for the reliability of what is written in your word. And we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to remember these things when we study the Bible, that what we are reading is what was originally written. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through this truth. We love you, Lord. And I just pray that you would bless anyone and everyone who has heard this podcast. I pray that you would assure them that what they are reading is from you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you all next week. I hope you have a great weekend and everything. May God bless you as we learn more about him through what he has revealed in his word. Thank you for listening.